pretty easy for us to be enticed with new. Like a new car. A new home. This is cute. A new job. <laughs> a new trend. A new look. A new you. Nope. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Because our creator seems to be all about new. Like a new promise. A new command. mercies, and even a new year. God not only loves new, but promises to make all things new. And we are invited into the sacred work. So let me ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand for me. I want to do a little poll here. How many of you made some kind of resolution this past week? You made some kind of resolution this past week. Raise your hand if you made some kind of resolution. Okay. Good many of us. I made a resolution. Um, I ate everything that was put before me beginning <laughs> December the 1st. And so I stepped on the scales this past Monday, and my scales said, please ask your friend to get off. <laughs> and so I realized I've got to stop doing something different than I've been doing. I've got to make a resolution. It seems like this kind of time of year is a good time for us to make resolutions, to make commitments. We step on a scale. We don't like what we see. We look in the mirror. We don't like what we see. We think about where we are, what we've done, and we don't like where we are or what we've done, and so we make some changes. Most resolutions, most commitments that people make during this time of year have to do with our health, our fitness, or our weight has to do with our relationships, our friends, our families, or our money, our finances, things like that. Those are the kind of resolutions most people make. But I found some resolutions on Twitter this past week that I thought I would share with you just so that we could have a little bit of fun. Here's the first one. My New Year's resolution is to stop typing LOL after every sentence LOL. <laughs> All right, he messed up. My New Year's resolution is to have healthier thought patterns because as of right now, someone can text me okay instead of okay exclamation mark and I'll be in my head assuming they hate me and are praying for my ultimate demise. <laughs> they need some counseling. Third one, my New Year's resolution is to be more patient. I hope I accomplish this as fast as possible. <laughs> My New Year's resolution is to be more assertive, if that's okay with you guys. One person said, my New Year's resolution is to never again take sleeping pills and laxatives on the same night. <laughs> I think we would all resolve that one, amen? I mean, that would make for a difficult evening. I think we would all agree on that one. And then there's this one. My New Year's resolution is to become as fat as I was the first time I ever thought I was fat. <laughs> little, little honesty here. My wife said that to me, too. She's not fat, but she said, I wish I was as fat as I was when I used to think I was fat. I'm going to give me a break. But here's what you need to understand. Even though 
resolutions and commitments that have to do with our health and our fitness and our finances and our relationships and all of those things are important and we should do all of those things I'm convinced that all of those things are ultimately rooted in the spiritual so in other words if we get our spiritual house in order then everything else will take care of itself did you hear me and so if we're having struggles or problems in one area whether it be our health or our finances or our relationships oftentimes in life that problem that we're having is ultimately rooted in the spiritual and so if we get the spiritual in order then everything else will follow I am convinced the key to a new you this new year is to both understand and experience what it means to have new life in Christ if you want to have a new you this year you have to understand what it means to have new life and you have to experience that new life and so with that said I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5 verse 20 Romans chapter 5 verse 20 we're going to start back in verse 20 and then head into Romans 6 but while you're looking that up I want us to do a little review because we've been in the book of Romans for several months and in Romans chapter 1 2 and 3 we discovered that all of us every one of us is guilty before God we have all sinned before God we have all fallen short of God's glorious standard both the religious and the irreligious the moral and the immoral the good and the bad we have all sinned against God in Romans chapter 3 verse 19 it says the entire world is guilty before God we have consistently and willfully rebelled against him we have rejected his authority we have broken his laws we have suppressed his truth we are guilty no one is good not Billy Graham not Mother Teresa and certainly none of us in this room can be considered good we are guilty that's the message of Romans 1 2 and 3 but in chapters 4 and 5 Paul pivots and he moves from giving us bad news to giving us some good news and he tells us that even though we are guilty God still loves us and God has provided a way to remove our guilt to make us right with him and that way is through receiving Jesus as our Savior and our Lord by grace through faith we receive Jesus and our guilt can be taken away you see Jesus didn't come to this earth to teach us good values Jesus didn't come to this earth to, to set an example for us to live by Jesus came to this earth for one reason and one purpose and that was to die on a cross for our sin Jesus came to this earth to die so that our guilt could be removed but understand Jesus didn't stay dead the Bible tells us on the third day Jesus was resurrected from the dead Romans 425 says it this way Christ was delivered for our offenses our sins but he was raised again to justify us to make us right with God in Romans chapter 5 verse 16 it says God's free gift leads to us being made right with God 
even though we are guilty of many sins. And so that's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. We're guilty, but God, through a free gift, declares us not guilty. But as we move into chapter 6, Paul begins to talk about how the gift of eternal life not only changes our eternal home, but it changes our life here and now. You see, the Bible talks about salvation as a past, a present, and a future event. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, salvation is a past event. The past event is justification. When I repent of my sins, when I place my faith in Jesus, I am saved from the penalty of sin. My debt has been paid. My account has been cleared. I have a home in heaven set aside for me. That's justification. I am saved from the penalty of sin. The future event of salvation is called glorification. Glorification is when I receive a new home, the presence of God, and with it a new body that is free from the very presence of sin. You see, there is coming a day when we will no longer have to battle against the temptations of sin and the tempter himself, Satan. There is coming a day when everything will be made new. That is glorification, when we live eternally in the presence of God. But in between justification and glorification is something the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is what you and I as followers of Jesus experience as we are living in this sinful world. We are being saved from the power of sin. You see, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I live my life under his control, sin's control, and even the allure of sin becomes less powerful in my life as the Holy Spirit becomes more powerful in my life. And that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about. Romans 6, 7, and 8 talk about this new life that we can live as God is preparing for our future home. That's sanctification. So with that said, I want us to read beginning in verse 20 of chapter 5. And, and let's just ask God to use his word to permeate our minds and our hearts. So that when we leave here, we'll be changed. Uh, listen to what it says. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that, that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Uh, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know 
that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we are set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Now, Paul in those verses gives us three things that I believe are keys to a new you this new year. And if these three keys are appropriated in your life, I promise you 2020 will be a different year. Now here's key number one. You've got to know who you are. If you want to have a new you in this new year, it begins with knowing who you are. Three times in these verses, Paul uses three different words for know. In verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 9, Paul uses three different Greek words for that word know, perceive, understand. It's as if Paul is doing everything he can to help us understand what happens when we're saved. He wants us to know who we are. He wants us to understand what happened when we were saved. He wants us to perceive in our mind the transformation that has taken place because we are followers of Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. If you are in Christ, you are a new man, you are a new woman, you are a new boy, you are a new girl. It's as if the old has died. It's as if everything has been made brand new. That phrase, in Christ, that's a perfect description of what a Christian is. We are in Christ. That phrase is found over 120 times in Scripture. You see, when we become a Christian, we are not only identifying with what Christ has done for us. When we become a Christian, Christ becomes a part of who we are. Did you get that? Being a Christian isn't just saying identify with what Jesus did. Becoming a Christian is saying Jesus is now a part of who I am. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says it this way. Don't you realize that your bodies are part of Christ's body. Your body is part of Christ's body. You have been joined with Christ. At salvation, something supernatural happens to you. You are now a part of Christ, and Christ is a part of you. 
Now, as we read these verses in Romans 6, we discover that, that when we are saved, we have died with Christ. And we have died with Christ to sin. Now, I've discovered that many people make one of two possible errors when it comes to trying to understand the Christian life and live the Christian life. The first error is legalism. We think that the Christian life is all about a set of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations that we have to follow. And, and, and we check off these boxes. And that's what the Christian life is all about. We go through life checking off these boxes. And, and we picture God kind of like Santa Claus at Christmas. You know, Santa Claus has a list. He checks it twice. And he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. And, you know, everybody wants to be on the nice list, right? Nobody wants to be on the naughty list. And we go through our Christian life thinking that's how God is. God's up in heaven checking the list, seeing who's naughty, who is nice. But I'm going to tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says we are saved by grace. It's a gift of God appropriated through faith. It's not our works that save us. No one can boast. We don't deserve it. It is a gift legalism stifles the Christian life legalism stymies what God wants to do in your life legalism is an error but there's another error that I'm afraid that many Christians fall into and that's the error of license now license basically says that there are no rules that when we become a Christian it's kind of like the wild west since we're saved by grace anything goes I can do whatever I want to. I can do whatever makes me happy. Regardless of what God's word says about it, we have this idea that since we're saved by grace, we can premeditate sin. I mean, I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by God's grace. Because I'm saved by God's grace, it doesn't matter what I do, God will forgive me, and so I'm okay. And so we premeditate sin. You say, people don't do that. They do it all the time. I have people come in to counseling with me and, and a husband and wife, and they'll be at each other's throat, you know, trying to kill each other. They don't want to live together anymore. They don't like each other. And I'll ask the question, well, you know, what's going on? And, well, she's not doing this. He's not doing this. And, and as we talk, we discover there's no biblical grounds for divorce. And we talk about that, and I ask the question, well, well what do you think the Bible says about, about divorce? Well, I know the Bible says we shouldn't do it, but you see, when we sit back and say, I know the Bible says we shouldn't, but what are we doing? What are we doing? We're premeditating sin, aren't we? We're saying, I know God says this, but because I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter. I can do what I want to do because God's grace will cover anything and everything. Now some of you are saying, well, people don't do that. Yes, they do. They do it all the time. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And young people all the time will date non-believers. Young people, if, if, if young person, if you love Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible really says that you shouldn't be dating a non-believer. You say, well, it's different in my case. Why? It's premeditated sin. That's what it is. You're, you're, you're choosing what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. You say, well, people don't do that. They do it all the time. They did it in 
Paul's day. In chapter 5, Paul's talking about the law, and he says the law was given to show us how sinful we are. You see, the law was never given so that you and I could be saved because you and I could never keep the law. We just can't do it on our own. In our own power, we're powerless to keep the law. The law was given to show us how guilty we are. But then Paul says this. He said, where sin increased, and sin does increase, grace much more increased. In other words, regardless of how bad sin got, God's grace was good enough to cover all sin. Inevitably, some people took what Paul said and misunderstood it. They heard Paul say, well, since where sin increases, God's grace increases, then the more I sin, the more God has an opportunity to show off his grace. And I mean, I want to be a trophy of God's grace. And so I'm just going to sin like crazy so that God's grace will abound in my life. You say, people don't do that. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. And that's what they were doing in Rome. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, so what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that God's grace may increase? Should we continue to sin so that God can show off his grace? And then Paul says this, of course not. The word he uses there in the Greek is the strongest word he could use. Of course not. Absolutely not. Heck no. No way. You can't do it. And the reason you can't do it is you have died to sin. If you've died to sin, how can you keep on sinning? You've died to it. Paul tells us this over and over in verse 2. We have died to sin. Verse 3, we joined him in his death. Verse 4, we died with Christ. Verse 5, we've been united with him in his death. Verse 6, our old sinful selves were crucified. Verse 7, we died with Christ. Verse 8, since we died with Christ. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. Paul doesn't leave any room for doubt. When we become Christians, we have died to sin. Do you hear that? I mean, is there any other way to interpret that? There's no other way. A Christian has died to sin. So the only question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that we have died to sin? Does that mean that, that we will never sin again? I mean, if it means that, then none of us are Christians, right? I mean, because every one of us in this room will probably sin before the day is over in some way, shape, or form. And hopefully it won't be a big one. It may just be that someone cuts you off in traffic and you... I mean, you didn't even say the word. You just... Attitude was wrong, wasn't it? It may be like my wife when she gets upset and aggravated with me. I mean, how could you get upset with me? That's got to be sin, right? <laughs> I mean, but the truth of the matter is, we all sin, so that's not what this means. So does it mean that, that when we die to sin, we lose interest in sin? Well, if we lose interest in sin, that would mean that temptation to sin is no longer a temptation. I mean, if we lose interest in sin, then we're not going to be tempted to sin. 
And the truth of the matter is, as long as we live in this sinful world and we have an enemy that's trying to tempt us, we're going to be tempted to sin, aren't we? So that's not what this means. You see, I believe that when we die to sin, it means two things. First of all, it's reminding us of that event called justification. When Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, and our sins were nailed to the cross with him, he took the punishment for our sin upon himself. Through his death, we have been saved. We have died to sin. But I think it's speaking of something far more than that, too, based upon the rest of this passage. I think it's speaking of that event called repentance. That moment when, when the Holy Spirit touches our heart, we realize that we are under the control of sin. We are living under its power, and we no longer want to live that way. The Greek word repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction. It's, it's as if it's, it's like this. We're going through life, living life our way, doing our thing. We're our own boss. We're our own ruler. We live on the throne of our own life. No one can tell us what to do. We're the master of our house. We're going through our life, and all of a sudden, we come under conviction. We realize, I wasn't created to live this way. The things that I'm doing may bring momentary pleasure, but they're not bringing lasting happiness. And so all of a sudden, our eyes are open. We realize we're going in the wrong direction, and we repent. We turn from that self-centered, self-ruled, sinful life. We make the willful decision, I don't want to live under sin's control anymore. That's repentance. And the Bible says that repentance is a vital part of salvation. As a matter of fact, the Bible clearly teaches that you and I cannot experience biblical faith until we have experienced biblical repentance. We've turned from sin so that we can see the Savior. So repentance is dying to sin. Listen to what it says in verses 7 and 10. In verse 7, when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. When we died with Christ, we were set free from what? The power of sin. Verse 10, when he died, Jesus, he died once to break the power of sin. Jesus died to break the power of sin in your life. It's foolish for you and I to think that we can continue in sin as believers. 1 John chapter 3 verse 9 says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. He's been united with Christ. He's been made new. He is in Christ. What that means is this. If we willfully continue to sin, knowing full well what Jesus went through to purchase our redemption, it means that we are either insincere in our belief or we don't understand what biblical belief is really all about. Let me say that again. If we continue in sin, knowing full well what Jesus went through to purchase our redemption, 
It is saying that either we are insincere in our faith, it's not real, or we don't understand what true biblical faith is. We have died to sin. But the Bible goes on to say not only have we died with Christ to sin, we have been raised with Christ to live a new life. Verse 4 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of God, we have been raised to live new lives, new lives. You see, when we receive Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, we not only die to sin, we are raised a new person to live a new life for the glory of God. We're not the same. Salvation involves death. Salvation involves resurrection. When we die, we are taking off the old. When we're resurrected, we are putting on the new. Do you remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus back to life? Do you remember that? Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He'd been dead for four days. I mean, he stunk. He had been dead for so long. And Jesus went to his tomb, told them to remove the stone. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And here's Lazarus, you know, wrapped up like a mummy coming out, you know, of that tomb like that. Do you know the first thing that Jesus said as Lazarus came walking out of the tomb in his grave clothes. Do you know what Jesus said? First thing he said, take those grave clothes off of him. Did you get that? Do you understand the significance of that? Here's this guy who was dead, who now is alive. And what is the first thing Jesus says? Take those grave clothes clothes off of him the living don't wear the clothes of the dead you and I are called to live different than the world do you remember when God created Adam he created Adam the corpse he fashioned him out of the dust of the ground here's Adam the corpse laid on the ground he did not become a living soul until God did what he breathed the breath of life into him listen to me when we are saved the Holy Spirit of God comes into our life breathing the breath of life into us we are not saved until the Holy Spirit breathes life into our dead corpse we're dead in our trespasses and sins we have no hope but Jesus raises us up breathes into us the breath of life the power of the Holy Spirit and we are made brand new oh listen friend you have died with Christ to sin put it to death bury it but we have been raised to live a new life through the power of his spirit. You've got to know who you are. Being a Christian isn't praying some word. Being a Christian isn't being dunked in a pool. Being a Christian is dying to sin and being resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life through Jesus Christ. Now Paul does something. After he tells us that, he talks about baptism. If you read this passage, you'll see he talks about baptism several times in this passage. And the reason is because 
baptism is the biblical picture of what happens in our life. You see, most of us think that baptism is a picture of what Jesus did, and it is. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, but baptism is more than that. Paul says baptism is a picture that we have died to sin, and we have been raised to live a new life in Christ. Why did Paul talk about baptism here? The reason he did is because every single New Testament Christian was baptized. They understood the significance, the symbolism of baptism. That's why, by the way, if you are a Christ follower and you haven't been baptized, God forbid, why not? It's a picture of what God has done for you and what God is doing in you. Walk in obedience. Know who you are. Second thing. We got three minutes and 20 seconds. We can do this. Second thing. We got to say no to sin. Say no to sin. Paul tells us three times in three different ways to say no to sin. He says, don't let sin control you. Don't give in to sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body be used to sin. Do not. Don't. The Greek is literally saying, don't let sin rule your life. Don't give in to sinful temptations. Don't surrender to its power. And that's a decision that each and every one of us as followers of Jesus have to make every moment of every day that we live on planet earth. Some of us have this idea that, that when we give our life to Jesus, the battle is over. No, the battle is just begun. <laughs> I mean, before you become a Christian, you're a, you're a prisoner of war. Satan doesn't care what you do. Go to church, live a moral life, do whatever you want. He has you. But when you give your life to Jesus, he has one aim, one desire, and that's to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to take everything from you that God wants to give to you. And he's going to do everything he can to do that. Remember what it said in verse 10. It says, Jesus died to break the power of sin in your life. And so some of you are saying, well, if Jesus died to break the power of sin, then why do we struggle with sin? Well, see, even though the power of sin has been broken, you still have to resist sin. Until we go to heaven, we're away from this world that is filled with sin. We are away from the tempter who wants us to sin. We're going to have to resist sin. That's a decision we have to make. It's a decision to turn the computer off and not go to certain sites. It's a decision to not take that next drink because you know that next drink's going to take you over the edge. It's that decision to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. It's a decision that you have to make each and every day. And sometimes it's tough making those decisions because Satan makes sin look so appealing. The Bible says there is pleasure in sin. There is. Let's not lie about it. I mean, Satan has done everything he can to dress up the pig of sin and make it as beautiful as he can. 
and he fools us. He deceives us. And we get caught up in sin as believers. We don't resist and, and we're robbed of our joy. Do you remember David and Bathsheba? Here's David, this man after God's own heart, and he committed this terrible sin with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. I mean, just terrible stuff. And, and he tried to cover it up. And, and he, the Bible writes about it in multiple places. But in one of the places, one of the things that David says as he prays about his sin is he says, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see, the sin had robbed him of his joy. You see, there comes a point in every person's life, I believe, I really do believe this. It may come moments before death, but there comes a point in every person's life where their eyes are open and they realize, you know, the things that I've been chasing in this world haven't filled me up. They haven't brought me what I'm looking for. They haven't given me the joy I want. And that's why people search. They go from job to job and relationship to relationship and pleasure to pleasure because we're searching for that one thing that's going to bring joy to our life. And when we find Jesus, we discover it. But then when we don't resist sin and we fall to sin, we lose the joy that was brought through the salvation that Jesus paid for. We've gone back to the things of this world thinking that joy is going to be found there when it's not. It's deceptive. So we have to say no to sin. And that's something you've got to do every day. Listen, I wish I could tell you otherwise. But until Jesus comes back or you die, you're going to be in a battle. And you're going to have to resist sin and you're going to have to say no. And you're going to have to have accountability partners in your life. And you're going to have to do everything you can to say no to sin because sin's going to rob you of everything that God wants in your life. You got to know who you are. You got to say no to sin. Third thing, we're going to do this real quick. You've got to use your life for God's glory. Verse 13. Use your body to do what is right for God's glory. You see, you have a choice on how you're going to use your life. Are you going to use your life to pursue happiness or holiness? Are you going to use your life in a pursuit for pleasure and fulfillment? Or are you going to use your life to bring glory and honor to the name of the one who created you? Let me tell you what. You weren't created for this world. You were created for something far better. And so don't waste your life pursuing the things of this world because they're never going to give you what you're looking for. You're only going to find it when you use your body, you use your life to bring glory to God with all the gifts, all the abilities, all the talents, all the resources you have. And let me tell you, when you know who you are, when you say no to sin, and when you use your life to bring glory to God, I promise you things will change. And you will discover a new you this new year that is better than any you you've ever had in the past. Do you want a new you in 2020? Then you've got to know who you are. 
You got to make the commitment to say no to sin. Resist its power because its power has been put to death. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And use your life to bring glory to God. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed. There's probably some here today, this morning, who have never, have never made that decision to give their life to Christ. You've never died to sin. You've never been resurrected through the power of His Spirit to live a new life. You may have prayed a prayer. You may have joined a church. You may have been dunked in a tank. But your life has never been changed. And if you're here today and you know, you know, you know, you know that you've never died to sin. You know that God's Holy Spirit has never come into your life making you new. And yet you want that today. You want it. You want it more than you want anything else in life right now. Then I want to encourage you right here, right now, in this moment, to pray this prayer. Pray it to God humbly. Pray it to God with every ounce of your being. Dear God, I humbly come before you this morning asking you to forgive me. I've lived life my way. I've sinned against you, rebelled. I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. I believe Jesus came to this earth. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave defeating sin for me. And today, Lord, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Come into my heart. Take control. Make me new. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Thank you for your gift forgiveness. Thank you for your salvation.